Welcome to Orchestrated, a musical podcast where we discuss the past, present, and future of music creation to explore exactly what it means to be a musician in the modern era. I'm Chris Hazel, and this week, Mike Patty and I are joined by film composer Brian Ralston. Now, Ralston has over 20 years of experience in the media music industry, and his career is marked by uplifting, heart-pounding, melodious compositions that have captivated audiences worldwide. And with an interest in nurturing future composers, he's taught for UCLA's film scoring program, as well as hosted the popular Scorecast podcast, helping to shed light on the business intricacies of the film industry from a composer's lens. So in this episode, Mike, Brian, and I dive into what it means to be a professional composer, the mindset of an entrepreneur, how to empower yourself when you're just breaking into the industry, and so much more. Brian also tells us about his new seminar, Demystifying the Composer Business, and how he plans to use it as a vehicle to guide young composers through the less, you know, glamorous parts of being a professional. So be sure to check out the show notes for more details. Before we hop into the conversation, you can catch us on Instagram at Musio, and check out our YouTube channel at Musio.official for more fun and more content. And if you're a music creator looking for some quality virtual instruments, don't forget to head over to Musio.com to get a ridiculously huge collection of some of the world's best sounds completely free for 30 days. So now that we've gotten that all out of the way, let's get down to business in our conversation with Brian Ralston. Where, uh, what, what part of the world are you in? Uh, Los Angeles, Los Angeles. Oh, cool. Whereabouts? So Baldwin Hills, like if you draw a line between USC and LAX, yeah. there's the Baldwin Hills where they have the oil stuff. So I'm on the east side of that. Somewhere around here, Ray Charles used to live. <laughs> it's kind of like this famous area for Motown and stuff. So, Did we start the podcast or are we doing it Joe Rogan style here? We're, we're, just... <laughs> we, we're, we're recording, yeah. we're rolling. Um, I'd love to know how, how do you guys know each other? Let's just start there. Like, how did you guys meet? I, you know, Brian probably doesn't remember it, but when I was like 20, I, I was in Long Island. I was going to school and, but I always wanted to go to USC and I connected with Brian King, who was the new chairman of the department. And, uh, I talked to him on the phone he's like, yeah, you should come out. We're going to do a session in a couple of weeks at Paramount. I was like, I just, I can just come out and just sit on a session. Like, wow, cool. So I flew out and I sat in one of the students' sessions they they ever they did like thirteen sessions a year at Paramount. It's one of the coolest things about USC. You get your music performed by real players, these you know iconic studio players that we all grew up listening to. But I went and I uh, I remember connecting with this uh, friendly gentleman sitting in the back, and it ended up being Brian Ralston. I'm very like ninety nine percent confident that it was you. Yeah, you know, I don't remember that. I, he doesn't remember, <laughs> but I remember that. And I was like, how do you like USC? And he's like, it's great. It's amazing. And um, I ended up going the year after in 2002. Because yeah. my year, I think my year was the last year Buddy Baker was officially head and Brian King was was his number one. And then Buddy died like right after yeah. or towards the end. or I He died in August of that year. Okay. Right. And I started September. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was yeah. sad. Yeah. And, so, then, and then ever since we've just... <clears throat> known each other and known of each other. And of course, um, me being a trumpet player, when Cine Brass stuff came out, I w- I'm always very picky about my brass samples. And sure, at the time yeah. it was, you, you know, and still is like what I use and, and the best. So, um, so I've just, we've just known each other through that. Yeah. But I wanted to have Brian on this, on this 
fledgling podcast because uh, Brian, to me, is one of the uh, most articulate voices out there uh, in our world of, of music, and business. You. And uh, do you also used to be part of the Scorecast, right? Is that still going? I did, and it is not. So we we did a podcast, Scorecast podcast, uh, for many years, probably over a decade, actually. With Dean Ogden and I, um, Dean had started that earlier on with Lee Sanders, who does the Amazing Race. Um, Lee got busy doing other stuff, and at some point, a few years into them doing that, uh, Lee left. Dean uh, came to know me, invited me in to co-host with them, and I think we had a really good just rapport. I like to say I like to think we were fun to listen to, um, <laughs> even if you know what we were talking about was you know, mundane or whatever. Um, and we did that for 10 years. And the whole point was to help composers learn about everything, you know, even outside of writing the notes. Um, Scorecast community still exists. The podcast does not. So the communities yeah. on Facebook still exist and probably the, the, the most popular one and the one that actively does meetings and venues and activities is the one in London. So, uh, but the score, we, we shut down the website and we shut down the, the podcast because Dean, Dean's a drummer. He went back, to, he moved to Indonesia and he drums for like David Foster and a bunch of people in Asia. Um, and he, ha he has a band now that he's playing with and producing, but he's like, I'm moving out of the film music industry. And he's like, I really mm -hmm. don't feel like I should be talking about the film music industry when I'm not doing it anymore. So that was kind of the crux of him leaving. And then I just felt like I never found a co-host um, that had the same vibe Dean and I had. So we just kind of stopped it. Brian, were you, were, were you always sort of business minded? Did you start out that way? Uh, you know, when you were first starting out in music, how much of that was a learning experience for you? And what was that learning experience like? Uh, honestly, all of it. <laughs> so I'm, I've always been in general a good problem solver and mm -hmm. I'm also kind of a calm introverted person. Even if I'm freaking out on the inside, people on the outside probably won't see that or see very much of that. Um, my wife sees it a lot now, but uh, <laughs> you know, other than the people extremely close to me, I, they probably see me as a fairly calm presence, um, which I think from a business aspect helps because if you're there to solve problems and you're there to do things, um, and you're not freaking out about it. It, it, it helps everything. Um, yeah. having said that, I'm also an individual that if I need to redo my website and someone, I, I approach people and they say, okay, that's going to be $3,000. I'm like, eh, I'd rather spend that $3,000 on gear or something for my <laughs> studio. So I will go learn how to code or do the website or find a template that I can use that I don't have to code to to do it. And so take that philosophy and extrapolate that out into all the various business aspects. I, I basically self learned a lot of stuff along the way in how to handle stuff. Um, I did my own taxes for very, for many years um, until mm -hmm. it got to a point where I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the responsible one making a mistake here when you, when you have an LLC and you have other stuff and it just got beyond where I'm like, you know what, I can, I can hire a professional to do that. Um, but it also means I understand it. You know, I've, I've gone through it. Um, same thing with the legal perspective. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. But now, you know, having taught the business of film music for many years at UCLA Extension, like 
I've seen enough contracts. I've talked with enough lawyers. I have lawyers from, you know, from my producing side and from my composing side that I learn a lot from. So that doesn't make me necessarily a lawyer that can practice law, but it means that I can read a contract and I can understand what's good and what's bad about it. And perhaps, you know, save a few hours on the, on the bill of calling the lawyer to understand what this means if someone sends it to me. So sure. from a business standpoint, getting back to your question, it's a lot of just experience and, and learning from making mistakes and from um, doing a lot of reading, a lot of talking, a lot of doing um, on my own. So, uh, you know, if you're a starting music creator, right, which is probably a lot of people that might be listening to this, what are some of the essential skills or knowledge that you would need uh, to succeed? And this is assuming that people know how to compose, they have the gear, all of that stuff. And what we've learned is that's actually a small percentage of what it means to be a professional composer. Sure. Am I right in that? It's sort of like the composing side is always like, that's just assumed that you can do that. Yep. Then there's all this other extra stuff. Yep. And, and we don't often get taught that. So what, is, what are some of those things that we need to, if you have like a list you can rattle off or something? Sure. These are not going to be in any important order because um, they will just come to my head. So if, if the most important thing is last, forgive me. Um, you know, I think certainly people have to have in this day and age an awareness of, of how to use social media. I think people like to get to know the artists that they follow more than they used to. I think people like to see that they're human. I think people like to hear from them in general. Um, yeah. At the same time, I think there's a skill there in using your social media as only promoting yourself because that turns people off, right? The, the people want to get to know you. And by that, it's an organic, I want to follow this person. And so um, it's, I, I guess, kind of learning or knowing how to use social media to your advantage and who your audience is. Um, I think at the outset of a career, I would, I personally would care a lot less about getting the world to follow my music than I would about the industry to follow my music. Because I don't, I, you know, if you haven't done many films and your point is to get hired by directors and producers, I, I'm not, I don't really care that you have a huge YouTube following yet. I think all the music, you want to have a music supervisor following. You want to have all the directors following you. You want to have, you want to be active in forums for filmmakers and producers and editors and all that stuff. Right. And so it's, it's, mm. I guess, a knowledge of how. Uh, to use social media and how to use it effectively. I think people certainly need to understand, not be afraid of the legal stuff. I, I think if you can um, learn how to read a contract um, and learn to understand it, um, that will go a long way. You don't have to know how to write your own contracts. You shouldn't be doing that. You should actually be using a, an attorney to protect yourself. Um, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of people put that off to the point where they don't understand what they're, what they're getting, you know? And so, um, don't be afraid of the legal stuff. I think from a financial stuff, you have to get your financial, um, ducks in a row. Uh, you know, not everybody's going to be able to form an LLC right off the bat, but everything you do can be a business expense that you effectively write off. And the ultimate goal I would say of a business is to 
be able to offset your income by expenses and reinvesting in yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you make $20,000 for whatever music stuff you do during the year, well, you've probably bought an awful lot of software and you have probably a cell phone that is your main business phone. You have website fees, you have email stuff that you can use as a write-off to bring that tax liability down. Um, I think a lot of people don't mm -hmm. understand. They leave a lot on the table in terms of money and finances. Uh, having an LLC or legal entity to work in um, is is a great way to do that because you you create this corporate or financial separation between your personal life and your business life. Um, composers, you know, I don't I don't see a lot of small people getting sued for copyright infringement of stealing some theme, but it does happen in the music world, and you want to be working under a business where if someone is suing you for stealing their theme or stealing their song or whatever, um, they can't come after your home. They can't come after your personal assets or your family. So you creating this corporate separation is important for reasons beyond finances. It's, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I remember I had an experience um, when I was, I got signed on to do a mini series for ESPN and the producer called me in and, and he was writing up contracts and he was, he was actually trying to get me to do like a certain amount or a certain number of cues for free. He was trying to, he was trying to set a threshold of like, you know, if it's under, if the queue is under this amount of time, you just do it for free. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't think that that's appropriate, you know? A 30-second cue could take all day, or it could take 30 seconds. It depends. Sure. At the time, I think I was only 22 or 23, so I was sort of just you know, getting my feet wet, and I hadn't incorporated or anything like that. And he said to me, all right, I'll sign this contract. And then as he was signing it, he was saying, you know, you should really think about incorporating, because if you don't deliver on this contract, I'm going to sue you. And if you were incorporated... I wouldn't be able to take your house or your car. <laughs> and I just remember being like, wow, this is the world I've stepped into. Yeah. So that, you know, that, uh, that advice that you're giving seems really uh, applicable for sure. And to the contract points you were talking about, sometimes you don't, sometimes people are afraid to negotiate. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and I will be the first to tell you that I, I don't think the ideal scenario is that the composer can just be the creative and they have someone negotiating for them. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be an agent because a, a, a fledgling composer is not going to have an agent, right? So, but hopefully, they, maybe that's your attorney, maybe that's a lawyer. I don't know, but if you're in a scenario where you are truly by yourself and you're being handed a contract, it's a negotiation. People expect you to negotiate, and yeah. I, I think um, you know, pushing back with another suggestion of what this could be um, should be you know, comfortable. You need to get comfortable with that. I, I would tell you on, on Crooked Arrows that I did, the initial pitch to me from a contract perspective and a budget perspective as they wanted to hire me was that it was going to be an all MIDI score because, you know, they didn't know. And I, and I sat there and I, I thought of an argument and I said, you know what, one of the main production companies of it, there, there's always an LLC that makes the movie. And then there's a separate production company, usually co-production companies for whatever reason. And one of them was called Sports Studio. 
and they get involved in pretty much any film that has a sport uh, that they're involved. They might be providing uniforms, but they might be providing funding. Like it's, they do it all. Um, and they were involved in this. And I went back and I looked at every film sports studio has done. And there was not one film that did not have a score without a live orchestra. They, literally, mm. Miracle, you know, with Mark Aisha, mm. uh, Rudy, like all these films had huge scores. And now here's this movie. And they weren't the only production company, but, uh, you know, okay. And it didn't have that. And so I made the argument. I said, look, everybody's going to have an expectation of what this can be. And it needs, you know, and I would like it to be this, but in order to do this, we have to have more money. I, that's not going into my pocket. It's going to go directly into your film and into the production of it. And we actually, we almost doubled our budget and we did it on contract in Los Angeles. And if I hadn't pushed back and just said, Oh, I'm so happy to get this project. I'm going to say, yes, yeah. it would have been a MIDI score. And so mm -hmm. I, I, you know, you have to be willing to negotiate and to push back. And, and sometimes, you know, you're not going to get every, and no one's going to get everything they wanted. They didn't get what they wanted. They agreed to fund more money into the, into the orchestra. But at the same time, um, you have to be willing to negotiate. Well, and that's hard to come to, right? Like from, from being the perspective of when you, when you get into composing or, or even writing original music or whatever, it's like you're coming to it from a creative aspect. You got involved because you're, you know, interested in creating music. And so like when you're first at the, at the, um, at the start of your career and you're, you have a contract put in front of you or you're in the room with a producer who's been at this for decades, you feel like such a small person in that room compared to the person that you're negotiating with. What do you think, like, what are some things that, a, that creative people can take on to feel like they have the power to negotiate in that situation? Just to do it. I mean, if someone came to me with a short film and said, I have no money, mm -hmm. will you score it? I still think there's a negotiation there. There's an acknowledgement. This is a short film. Everybody's doing this for a student project. There's no money. But one, I would say, okay, then if you're being asked to do this for free, first, I wouldn't do anything necessarily for free. I think something can be negotiated, even if, um, okay, let's just say I have a hundred bucks for my short film. Can you write me a score? And, you know, but it's a promising student at, USC, Chapman University, what, AFI, whatever. And I feel like I want to start building a relationship and it's a subject matter that interests yeah. me. So I say, tell you what, let's take the hundred bucks you have. This is the negotiation. Let's take the hundred bucks you have and turn that into a license fee where I hmm. get to own everything, the publishing, the writer's share, everything of it. And it's the same hundred bucks that you have, but I own it and we'll do it that way. Like that would never happen at a studio but in the independent world, that would absolutely happen because they'd be like, great, let's do it. Because they don't they don't know what that means necessarily. But so now it's your right. job to understand and explain what that means. And I would tell them, you know, if you want a Michael Jackson song in your movie, you don't need to own the Michael Jackson song and the recordings of everything about it. You just have to license it with terms that give you all the rights that you need to sell it or distribute it or whatever. It's the same thing. for A score doesn't have to be any different. And so... Yeah. Um, just treat it as a license agreement. And so you take that same amount of money and f negotiate kind of in your favor. Now, are you going to make publishing on a short film that's not commercial? No. <laughs> but you do start setting precedent in your contracts that, you know, under certain threshold, 
I license and not do a work for hire. If I want to do your short film, I'll do it, but it's going to be under these terms. And you just start, yeah. you just start negotiating. Everything can be a negotiation and it doesn't have to be necessarily even for money. So what you're saying is like, so if you own the music or you own the publishing, what does that mean? Like, uh, like you own the control, own the intellectual property, the copyright of that music, they're licensing and can use it in their film, but you could theoretically put it into your own music library. You could use it for another film. You could create a concert suite of it because you really like the themes and how they flesh out. You could do your own soundtrack. You could do your own audio recording release. So Remonetize it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you could do pretty much anything you want with it. Which right. yeah, so like it's it's like you know if you if you weren't to do the licensing fee if you were to d just do the music for the hundred dollars it's like that music goes to that movie and that's the only thing that you can use it for. If you license it to them and that hundred dollars is the licensing fee, then you can use that music to make more money in other projects if you would like to, like you're saying, mm -hmm. right? So the life of that lives on it. It it continues to hold value. For you as you move forward in your career. Correct. And that's not going to be a huge boom when you just look at that short film. But if you look over 10 or 20 years of having a lot of stuff where you build your catalog of music, you know, mm -hmm. like the people that tend to make money on Spotify, they don't make money on any one thing. They make money because they have a lot of things that are all adding up. So how do you see things changing? I know like when we were starting, the idea of being a film composer I mean, or writing film music, quote unquote, was what we wanted to do. But that's really changed. Like I, I don't, especially amongst uh, younger people, I don't hear that term as much, film music. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are uh, want to get into game music. Like that's become actually fairly prestigious. You know, 20 years ago, being a game composer was considered second class. But now it's like a lot of people aspire to do that. Absolutely. Um, and it seems like things have really shifted and a lot of people are just writing music for their own social channels and, or, or just getting it out there and putting it up on Spotify, making as much as they can from Spotify or, or whatever. And like, where do you see it going? What's the future of a music, of the, of music creators? And what does our whole industry look like? That's a different question. Yeah. So how, how has it changed to date? What, what, what has been your observations? I, I feel like the stigma of moving between genres of what you do has kind of gone away. So like you were alluding to, I, I think there was this pecking order of film composers are at the top, right? TV composers below that, even reality TV below that. And then you mm -hmm. got music library, whatever. I think that the, the pecking order has all blown up and it's just kind of media music. So you have yes. film composers doing games, you have TV composers doing films, you have game composers starting to also do the film related to the game. Like you have all these mixes. I, I think there are still a couple hierarchies that I, I have some friends that are doing that feel a little stuck um, reality TV or daytime TV stuff tends to be that and, perhaps that's because it is much more of a library gig than it is going to picture or creating narratives, musical arcs. Right. They're not, you know, they're just doing 10 bumpers for, you know, a, a daytime talk show and, but they're making bank because that show is playing every day and it's, you know, so they're making a good living, but they're creatively probably not where they want to be. Um, but having said that, I think the stigmas have gone away. Um, I think a lot of people are being, and will continue to be asked to do more for less and to be more diverse in what they offer. 
So mm-hmm. I think you, we used to be able to delineate, I'm just a composer, we need to have a mixer, we need to have a music editor, blah, blah, blah. And now I think a lot of people come to the composer and expect or anticipate that because of that package deal that we typically get, you know, you're going to provide final product. And if that means you're doing your own mixing and you're doing your own music editing, that's what that means. And then if you decide you want to have a mixer do it, that's your composer decision and it's coming out of your chunk, right? And so we right, have to yeah. add a, a mixer on our dime, not theirs. So I, you know, people are being re- asked to do a lot more um, and, and they're, you know, expand their knowledge in, in how they do things. And so. Yeah, you've mentioned the package fee. I, I mean, I almost feel like that that's the only way I, I, the opposite is, is to just be hired as the composer and then the studio or someone handles the rest of it. That is such an extremely rare situation. Um, my question is, how do you charge for this stuff? How do you decide, you know, uh, how much to charge for X number of minutes? Or, I mean, do you go by the scope of the project? If it's only two minutes, but it's extremely, you know, it's going to be three months of work. If it's a big fireworks show for Walt Disney world, which is what I do. Yeah. Um, you charge different rates. So how do you, how the heck do you figure this stuff out? It seems like such a unquantifiable thing. Yeah. That's, like such, a, that's like, such a good question. That's such a good question, especially when you're starting out. Cause you're like, how much is all of this worth? You know, like when you, when you introduce yeah. money into the equation of, of, you know, your sort of creative process, you're like, how do I value this? I still, I, cause I haven't figured it out yet. I know if I'm working with a repeat client, I know how it's been in the past. Like I know, this particular person is really cool to work with. So I know yeah. I'm not, it's not going to be like three months of, of, you know, 800 changes because you would charge differently if you knew it was going to be really difficult. You know, I don't know. Let me just dis- let me dispel the myth that yeah. a film score should be 3% of the film's budget. Like there, there is no, there is no actually secret right. formula no, out there. Right. If, yeah. if they have a hundred million dollar temple film and they absolutely know that they want a solo piano score for creative reasons. They're not, they're not budgeting, you know, 10% of that hundred million for the score because they, (laughs) they know that's not what they want. So there, there really is no formula. Um, at least people know that I see that posted a lot or film score should always be, um, so it's not. Yeah. But then we have real life hits you and you're like, (laughs) I, I mean, this is, I, Rule of thumb, I've always had like a per minute rate that I kind of mm-hmm. would establish, especially if it's something that doesn't have ASCAP or BMI, like video games or theme park music. Is that per delivered minute? Well, you figure out, yeah, there's a per minute rate multiplied by the number of minutes you, the project should be. And then you come up with the package. I've always, I've, so this is probably the inappropriate way to do it. And, and I haven't scored anything in quite some time. But when I was first starting out, especially, um, I would sort of just, uh, estimate how long I thought that the project would take me and then break it down to basically an hourly rate. Like I'm okay making X amount of dollars per hour on there's day rates. I've offer. worked on projects where they just charge you a day rate. Like I just want access to you for, you know, five yeah. days straight or whatever. Like that is actually okay. the, that's the union yeah. model in general, like a, a film producer right. and forgive me for being film. My first answer is probably always film producers. Um, even though we're adding <laughs> games and everybody else into it, but they, you know, Hollywood works with unions and they all have day rates and weekly rates. And when someone's looking at how much something's going to cost, they typically like seeing a day rate or a weekly rate. So I need right. to hire a music editor for four weeks. 
what's that cost? Weekly rate is, you know, four grand. So that's going to cost me 16,000. Great. We're done. Charging by the minute from the people who are not used to that kind of might give pushback to that. They, they look at it as a labor issue or your time invested, not the minutes um, out. Having said that, we all know that, you know, a minute of solo piano takes a lot different than a minute of John Williams, right? And so mm-hmm. um, music is not equivalent in its time that you can do. So I do think you have to evaluate what you're being asked to do uh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, but I, I would, I would probably steer away from exactly what I was saying in that a day weight or weekly rate to me doesn't necessarily make sense for music. Um, right. Right. Because, because of, you know, and you're also going to be asked to redo it 12 times. So, you know, an orchestrator would get paid again for reorchestrating a new page because it's just a new, they get paid by the page. Whereas a composer, M. Night Shyamalan says, I don't like that theme. And James Newton Howard has to do it 38 times. He's not getting paid 38 times more to do that theme. But I guess the per minute of finished music feels like a more appropriate number. I think the game industry, from what I've heard, I've yet to score a game, um, is more in line with that. It's like a per minute of music rate. Um, mm-hmm. But the film industry... Yeah, because they're paying for... They're, they treat, they're just treated as assets. Yeah. And they're just paying for these assets that have been created. It's like a tech company. Yeah. You know? Very much tech. And and that's actually... Side note, that's actually a lot of the issue coming in with Netflix and Hulu's and all them is that they are really tech companies playing in the entertainment space. So the contracts they're offering composers and things are typically, you know, they get up a composer's eye or you're asking for what? Um, because in right. the tech world, they're used to owning everything. They're used to not paying royalties. They're used to that kind of a mentality. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, maybe we can dive a little bit into that. I mean, that's been the hot topic right now. What makes it uh, challenging to do residuals on something that's like a subscription model that contains all of this content and, and, if there's any streaming, how come it's not as high as, say, getting a check from your show on ABC or NBC? I, I will say our PRO royalties on terrestrial television and radio and traditional delivery methods are based on market value, which is based on potential eyeballs, right? So Los Angeles being a huge market is going to have a larger fee than Des Moines, Iowa, local broadcast Mm. right because the potential eyeballs there are different so they're paying out long ago negotiated rates which are fluctuating based on region and where you are and how many eyeballs could be watching the super bowl on that day when we get into streaming they know exactly who's watching they know exactly who's watching and they know that they clicked off after eight minutes or they know that they stayed through to the end or they know that they watched five minutes and then fast forwarded for 10 minutes and then fast forwarded again for 10 minutes and then clicked off. And so we're, you know, we're now into the micro analysis of who's being watched. And the argument is from the tech companies, why am I paying for a million potential people when I know actually only 17,386 people watch this? And of that, 1,283 of them clicked off after 15 minutes. I only want to pay for 15 minutes worth for those 1,200 people. And I'm only going to pay for the, you know, the tens of thousands that watched and not the potential million Netflix subscribers, which from a business standpoint is rather astute. 
You know, why, why, why should they have to pay a rate because they have millions and millions and millions of subscribers when they're not watching all the content, they're only watching what they're watching and for the pound of time they're watching it. So I, you know, I can't argue with the business argument of that, but for, as an artist who would have content on that, it sucks, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why we get Netflix residuals that are next to nothing. I would, I would throw another wrench into this. Um, argument of royalties and stuff in that is streaming really a public performance what do you mean by that public performance goes out on public airwaves you have it in los angeles you have an antenna it's broadcast out the public the fcc controls the airwaves those are public airwaves because they're controlled by the government okay even a lot of the telephone line delivery systems and cable systems had involvement in that the jurisdiction that controls access to that is a governmental regulation. Okay. The internet is not regulated like that. The internet is private. Okay. So let's say I have a, a movie, QuickTime movie, and I have it in my computer. I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to have it in my computer here and I have it on a server and I stream that QuickTime movie from my server under my desk to my TV on the wall. Is that a public or private performance? Private, obviously. I'm in my home. It's my computer. What if I put the computer in my, you know, I'm in my studio now. But what if I put my computer in the studio and I stream it to my house? It's a separate structure. But it's just going over a wire. Public or private? Private. It's my own studio. It's my own thing. Okay. What if I rent space on a server two miles down the street and I stream the same file to my house? Through the wire system, public or private. It's my file. I'm storing on, you know, cloud share, whatever. Or private. It's private. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's private. So same thing. So now expand that again. Netflix has servers. Netflix sure. is a private company. Their servers are streaming their movie to you. Is that public or private? They might be doing that one movie a million times to a million people, but each individual stream is a private performance. Right. Mm -hmm. So I could argue or could see the argument, does this even qualify for a public performance royalty? It's a private performance to your television from the Netflix server. You know, this is the argument that they ultimately make and continue to make. And the PROs try to negotiate or set a precedent. Okay, we, you know, we, this is a delivery mechanism to the public, but they're private subscribers right so they have to come up with a different method because i don't i don't feel it really fits in with the, the same rules and laws that we have of what is a public performance that is due a royalty uh, via copyright yeah. law right and so uh, we look at the future of royalties and streaming and to me it seems unless we change what we're getting paid from, it seems rather bleak because while we are getting performance royalties now from streaming, and I think that's good, it sets a precedent that they've started sharing something. I don't necessarily know if it's going to ever really be for everyone like it was on the terrestrial radio or television or whatever, um, because those markets are being paid on potential eyeballs and streaming is paid on actual eyeballs. So the people that are on a popular show are probably going to make a good amount of money that they could say that's the kind of an equivalent of what it used to be. But if you have a non-popular show on streaming versus a non-popular show on TV, I think that non-popular show on TV would actually get a lot more royalties and residuals because 
it's a potential amount of eyeballs. It's not exactly the Nielsen rating thing is a random sampling. It's not, you know, it's not exactly who's watching. Whereas streaming, they know exactly that only 584 people watch that, right? And so they're going to give you a little share, but it's micro pennies and you get, you know, three cents. So is that, so do you think that that results basically like as, as composers start to move forward into this new world of streaming, that the name of the game is really like about volume, like how, how many projects you work on, how much you have out there on all of these streaming platforms? I think the industry in general is a business of relationships. So if you're going to grow and get better projects that are better funded and bigger exposure, that's all about investing in your relationships. In terms of volume of product, I, yes. If you're a music library composer, if you're someone that is getting paid a lot with streaming and everything else, it's going to be a combination of your upfront licensing fees, which you may or may not take part of if you're contributing to libraries that are, you don't see any of that. I know there are some out there. Then you're only getting a back end, which is minuscule. Um, mm -hmm. I personally, in my head, have just come to a conclusion for myself that I, I can't count on the residual stream in the future as to being what's going to sustain me. So I kind mm -hmm. of, everything I get paid up front is what I'm going to make on this and anything else is icing on the cake. And if I, if I can be okay with doing the project for myself with that realization, um, at least now, cause I'm not scoring tentpole movies, then I'm, I'm happy doing the project and that's good. So, but I, you know, I, there are certain avenues that I don't really feel like I want to play in. Like I really am focused on the, the film drama ish actionist whatever type movies and so for me it is more about building filmmaker relationships which is no different than the volume you're talking about the more relationships you have the more opportunity you're going to have to do more projects but i but i think yeah chris you're right volume is a huge thing especially i mean if you're somebody who does a lot of uh you know, writes production music we call it or trailer music or music that's written with the intent that it'll be licensed later on I mean, there's people that have done extremely well doing that. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's risk there because you're just writing stuff in a vacuum and, yeah. and, and then hoping that it gets licensed. But that's it's the reason it's so much more valuable is because people will want to just, like, I want that piece of music specifically so you can charge for it. Um, but the guys that have done the best are the ones that have just created the most amount of volume. And that's kind of like... Um, I don't know. I just, I keep obsessing over what the future looks like because Brian, you just mentioned like income from ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, all these, it's going to dwindle over time unless something major changes. So where are the sources of revenue for music creators five years from now, even 10 years from now, if we can project that far ahead, like put our crystal ball, look at our crystal ball here. What, what, what do we see things for the ones that are just getting started now, what where should they invest? Like, what area of music should they invest? All of it. Um, all of it. <laughs> yeah. Diversify. Diversify. I, I, you know, still do your own albums for yourself. Do yeah. film work. Do game work. Do, if you can get it, do, you know, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are high school band directors um, from college. They, they went the music education route. I did not. I still do marching band arrangements for them when I have the time because it's fun. It gives me a break from the media thing. And 
you know, I don't really publicize on my website like that I do that because that's not really my main thing, but at the, it's like a side thing for me. Right. And I make a little bit of money here and here and there, and it all adds up at the end of the day. But, um, diversify, I think is, is how, and I would say even diversify out of music. If you want, I've always said that the best composers are really filmmakers themselves that just mm -hmm. understand the language of music and how to talk. And, you know, I've started getting into film producing as well. Now, I'm not saying every composer needs to get into film producing, but don't be afraid to diversify outside if you feel it's fulfilling or doing something else for you. I've seen people making videos just like, hey, I'm going to write a you know a piece of music here. I mean, it's all over YouTube and they're actually generating pretty significant YouTube income from, you know, these sort of contemporary music producers. And, you know, I'm thinking outside the film music world, you know, it's just people making really awesome music. They might be like live streaming it or they'll just talk about some new plugins and, you know, many of them get like affiliate marketing and there's all these other things outside the, you got to take your blinders off and see what else is out there in the music world. And it's pretty massive. Yeah. I mean, I fell into the whole sampling thing. I never thought I'd do that, but it's this great thing that's been able to support myself and my family so I can still do the fun projects that I get to do whenever they come in the door. Cause I can't personally can't live off of that stuff alone. Even the top LA studio musicians who are making good money doing their studio recording work, almost all, I guarantee you they have or have had private students on the side. Yeah. Not mm -hmm. only to, to perpetuate the next generation of whatever, but just, you know, it's, it's the play income for them because they're, they are the first call musicians, but that's a lot of people diversify in what they do when it comes to music. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, and I think musicians generally enjoy not being pigeonholed into one thing too. You know, I, I know some country artists who are getting a little tired of their own country stuff and they uh, have started, <laughs> I'm putting out a jazz album. It's like, Oh, are you stopping the country? No, no, no. I'm just doing a different thing. But it's also like, I think, you know, uh, one of the key things is like, we're, whether we like it or not, musicians are entrepreneurs. Yes. And, and, a, and a good entrepreneur is like looking for where the, the opportunity is and where the need is. And it may not necessarily be perfectly aligned with what your dreams and aspirations are, but it's, you're seeing where the opportunity is and then you go all in on that. And then that becomes your passion because you're like, this is actually really, this is fun because I'm solving people's needs. Mm -hmm. And if you could do that with music somehow, and I feel like now more than ever, we, we have to do that. Yeah. You are not a worker looking for work. You are yes, a business. You're not an employee. You're, you're not an employee. No, you're a business looking right? for clients. And so explain that. What does it mean to be an employee mindset versus sort of an owner mindset? One, I think it means taking responsibility for yourself a lot more, right? Agent Richard Kraft talks about this a lot on, on the forums. Uh, opening a restaurant, a, a restaurateur, he compares a lot of this to restaurateurs. You're going to invest probably a million dollars in a whole lot of time trying to open a restaurant before you sell one plate of food, right? You got to rent or lease or buy the space. You're going to equip it with equipment. You're going to develop your menu. You're going to hire staff and start paying them to train them. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a menu developed, all this other stuff. And now you're going to open, you have to advertise. That's going to be expensive. You're probably going to have free samples of food out on the corner to to have them come in on opening day with balloons and blah, blah, blah. And you right. have not sold one plate of food yet. 
And this is really conceptually no different than a composer starting their composer business. You've got mm. in this day and age have a website. You've got to have gear. You've got to have the software. You've got to have the ability to create. You've got to get word out about who you are, whether that's you being active on the internet forums or social media or hiring a publicist to promote some early thing that you're doing, right? So there's going to be an investment in there before you start seeing a return on that investment mm. in general. Mm. So an entrepreneur understands that this, all these aspects of building their business is, are their responsibility and problem to solve. You're not showing up and doing just labor for somebody else. And the fact that we also create an intellectual property that is protected in copyright law um, is another huge thing that separates us from just labor, right? So w which, which is how workers and employment is really governed. I mean, that's if you're an employee, you are providing labor for an employer and that labor has worth and value and there's hourly wage scales and all this other stuff. And, you know, a big part of the decision that led to us being independent contractors years ago um, and why we can't unionize, by the way, it's a whole nother show probably, is that we create intellectual, uh, intellectual property and there is an asset there and there's a value there. There's other right. aspects based on how we work. You know, you can point to getting paid separately as a package deal. We work in our own environments. We are not on anyone else's clock. No one's telling me what software I have to use. No one's telling me exactly how I have to write these notes on this page. I don't have a uniform I have to wear. All these things add up to the fact that you are your own independent business being contracted to provide a intellectual property product. Um, and so the, you know, the definition of an entrepreneur from a legal standpoint be different, but that's ultimately all those things lead to the fact that we are our own business. Yeah. Now, I, to, the counter to that would be, you know, I have friends that work for video game companies and they're paid a salary, pretty, pretty decent salary, mm -hmm. but everything, all their gear is owned by the game company. They actually have an office there. Um, you know, they got health, health insurance, all this great stuff. So how does that work? I mean, they're, they're, they're not entrepreneurial. I mean, in that situation, because you're... Because of all those differences added up, I would argue they are employees. And I would argue yeah. them, even as composers, with that employer could probably unionize if they wanted to, because okay. they meet so now, those definitions. So now, why, why wouldn't we all be just... What's the difference? Just why would you just want to go that route? you know, where you can just get a job or find or try to maybe encourage employers to treat us as employees so that we get this steady salary and steady stuff or keep things kind of the way they are and pursue this sort of way of life, I suppose, at being an entrepreneur. Why would you do either one? Why would I go the entrepreneur route and why would I go the, the employee route? What's the I, benefit of being like, it sounds like a lot of risk to be an entrepreneur. It is a lot of risk. It's a huge amount of risk. And right. And the mm. ones who risk the most actually reap the most benefits in general. Having said that, you know, I think there, most people tend to be risk adverse, especially when it comes to money and stability. And, uh, you know, I, I think showing up, doing your job, clocking out, having the weekend off, you know, I'll deal with that on Monday. Um, is a lot safer and certainly requires less, I don't want to say less effort because I don't want to 
demean workers that way. That there's a lot of people do their job respectably, but it it is a lot less risk. I, I mean, I guess that's it. Having said that, an employer can come in on any given day and just lay off a workforce without notice if they really wanted yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're if you were now, right? you, exactly, and if you were, I mean, look at the pandemic. You had you had you know not political, but you had the government telling workers. You cannot go do work. You cannot do this. You must stay home. Right. You know, and people that were working from home and were self-sustained in general, probably that impacted them very differently than people that had to go into the restaurant and be a server or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Or go yeah. into their office and work. So I think there are pluses and minuses to both. I think there's a different amount of risk to both. Uh, but I think for me, and I think one can only decide this for themselves, but for me, I think the freedom of being my own boss and being self-sufficient or striving to be self-sufficient is beneficial. Um, I'm not going to lie. You know, I, my, my wife has a corporate job that is very different than mine. It's probably the yin and yang of why we get along so well and do things. She, she works for FanDuel. She works for a corporate employer and she's been at that job now for almost 20 years. FanDuel hasn't been alive for 20 years. She's um, her company bought FanDuel, but then took on the FanDuel name. So she's been there actually um, since the inception of the company. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of stability there buying a house. Banks hate me because, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how good my credit score is. All of my pay stuff stuff gets reported on a 1099, which means there's good years and bad years. There's good times and bad. Hers right. is like 20 years of a W-2 and they're like, oh, we like that stability. <laughs> but yeah, I think, of course, I think people see that stability the same way when they look at jobs. Yeah. It's not like there's a pro or a con. Like it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take a look at yourself and like, what do you, what, what are you willing to do? Yeah. And I think that not everyone should be an entrepreneur. I mean, it's yeah. not like you have to be a little crazy, <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with you, I think, yeah. to be able to be that um, irrational because you do have to make irrational choices. And a lot of the people that I've seen are really successful, especially in the music, like the film music world, the guys, the, 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 uh, the A-list guys that we know, almost all of them have done something risky, uh, where they put a huge amount of money up front to do some big scoring session to try to get a gig. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. they could spend, you know, $80,000 of their life savings with the hope that they get the gig. Yeah. I've done that, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> me too. But then you don't get the gig, but it, it's weird. Sometimes it leads to other things, yep. you know, and it, it and it that's gets why I did it there. Right. Because yeah. I'm like, in reality, I know I'm probably not going to get this, but the people doing the hiring are, you know, they're going to make other product. They're going to do other things. They're going to go on. And now I want to be a known entity to them at least. And so yeah. it was a, it was an investment as I saw it. Um, in the relationship in that, in my business brand to put myself out there like that to, to the right people. I mean, risk, risk aside, you know, yes, going off and, and, and being an entrepreneur and doing it on your own is, is incredibly risky, but, uh, and, and I feel like the further along you get in your career, you know, maybe it gets a little bit less risky as you build more relationships and you have more under your belt. But like when you're just starting out, if, if you're just sort of dipping your toe into this world, uh, how do you deal with what you were saying, Brian, about how when you're an entrepreneur in this way, you don't necessarily have a stable paycheck. You don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. Yeah. 
one thing that I always found was that, you know, you actually end up working a lot more because even when you're not working on a job, you're working to find the next job. And that's a lot of time spent that you're actually not getting paid for. Mm -hmm. And then the next job you get might not actually pay that much, but you're kind of moving from job to job. And I know that that can be just really difficult to navigate for people. You know, so so for people who are sort of staring down that barrel, maybe not sure like where to start, uh, where to go, you know, how to sustain themselves during those initial years, like what what would be your advice in that part of the career? I just this doesn't really solve, I guess, how to pay your rent, which ultimately is the question is at the heart of the question you're talking about, but. Mm-hmm. I think at the outset of a career, people need to be much more concerned about building relationships and getting experience and credit than they do about what they're getting paid. I I realize that can be easier said than done. I don't want to sit here and feel like this is this is an easy thing. Like like people need to pay for food and they need to pay for a roof over their head. And L.A. is not a cheap place to do that. So if that means you need to keep, as Mike said earlier, keep your day job that does Mm -hmm. pay your bills so that you have some freedom in every waking minute of your uh, not day job time to do some short film work, to do music assistant for someone, maybe that, you know, you're having two jobs. You have the job you're not getting paid for, which is, or not getting paid much to assist somebody, maybe you're the night shift person coming in to do all the backups and whatever. And then you have the day job and then you're, you're figuring that out. Um, you know, if you live outside of Los Angeles or outside of a media hub and you feel like you need to move there to do that, I don't disagree with that, but you know, save up a chunk of money. So you have a little amount of time to come here and give it a good wholesome shot. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think diversifying, keeping that day job, there's something cathartic in that. I had a friend who now does a ton of music for TMZ and Ellen DeGeneres and all these other daytime stuff. He's making bank on his PROs. He worked at a bank for many, many years, including when he first started out. And that bank was like a web data entry job for him. And it was easy but it paid his bills. And then at night he would go home and every minute would score short films and do yeah. filmmaker things and, and work on his website and demo and everything else. And yeah, burning the candle at both ends. Right. Exactly. And you know, that's, and then he got to a point where he was making enough money with that. And the PRO started coming in enough with that, that he was able to quit his bank job and he just built off of that. So mm-hmm. I really do, you know, don't, don't be ashamed at all that you might have a Starbucks job or a bank job or whatever it is. In fact, if it's not in music, it might be a little healthy for your brain to get away from the music for a little while. So you feel, you know, yeah. you, you don't want to do a whole day's worth of like, in my opinion, Joanne Kane music copy stuff that's like, you know, it's like doing math all day. And then all of a sudden you got to do the same thing for your own music. So doing something completely different and then you're excited to go into music might, might be actually really beneficial. And then it gives you the freedom to like, say, yeah, I'll do that short film for a hundred bucks license fee, Mm -hmm. or yes, I'll do that other thing for you. Or yes, let me help you. And then you build a reputation that people like being around you. They, you say yes to everything and you do it with a smile and 
you will build on that. And at, at a certain point, the money will start to change and for your, to your benefit. Yeah. What's your opinion on this? I mean, one of the things that really helped sustain me early on when I, you know, I was married and I had my first kid was writing additional music for other composers. That was really just, uh, that was a really awesome thing for me. I, I know it's not something that can further your career, but you get an opportunity to write and will learn from other Absolutely. more established composers. And you get to work on far more high profile projects than you would have gotten on your own. And if you're, you know, for, I was very fortunate because the, the composers that I work with, like Chris Lennertz and Jim Venable, they, they put me on the cue sheet, mm-hmm. which was like, they didn't have to do that. And um, that was super cool. And I think that there's still opportunities like that. That's, the problem is then you end up networking with other composers, which may not benefit you yeah. in the long run. But uh, yeah, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that's a really cool way to, first of all, get better at your craft. And then you're not in the hot seat, Yep, which is a different- You're not doing the politics. You know, um, I yeah. think that's a great thing. I mean, my that's literally what I did, although not for very long. But I, you know, my first job writing music that actually got on air was with Rob Kroll in season four of Angel. And, you know, and he was really good to me, probably better than anybody. You know, I didn't work with him that long, but I think it was like $250 per minute at the time. Plus, I got 100% of cue sheet writers on whatever I did. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's awesome. That doesn't happen anymore. But at the time that was huge. Right. And so I, I'm like, okay. So I, I think, I think there is a lot of value in um, cutting your teeth, so to speak on. Yeah. Cause, that. cause what I see, at least my 10,000 foot view is like the, the composers that are starting to get all the work, they're like magnets. Cause once they get a little bit of notoriety, they get more projects, yeah. the more projects they have, the more help they're going to need. Yep. And what we're seeing is like most of the people that write the music that we see on all these shows are the people behind the scenes. It's not the name, main composer most of the time. They are often there to, you know, come up with the themes and take all of the meetings. But the, the real grunt work of writing the music is done by 20-somethings, you know, 30-somethings, people that are just have the time to work 18 hours a day to crank out large amounts of music. Especially on the big shows that, that do have a large yeah. amount of music. Um, right. I mean, that's such a that's such a different world uh, than anything I ever experienced uh, when I was in the sort of film music world. And I, I would say that pretty loosely. I, I fell into it completely by accident. It was not on purpose. I didn't pursue it. Um, I'm a I'm a rock and roll band person and it just sort of happened. But when I was in that world, I didn't even know uh, that, you know, there were teams of people that worked with composers. I didn't know that you could go work with a composer as a composer's assistant or anything like that. Like that world was completely foreign to me. So it's really interesting to hear about that because, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's super obvious to people. I know it wasn't, it wasn't to me. Yeah. There are philosophical things about that. I, I still think there are the, you know, rest in peace, Johan Johansson's of the world who, um, you know, will turn down work because they have other work and they don't won't be have the time to. Whereas some people will just say yes and then throw a bunch of assistants at it. Um, I do, mm-hmm. I do think there are still opportunities. They're probably more in film than they are in television, um, because films have a much longer chunk of time in general to kind of produce what they're doing. But yeah, but media has certainly certainly changed um, how composers work for sure. But then again, 
you be the composer you want to be, right? I mean, I don't, not everybody needs or wants to be the superstar that's doing 12 shows in eight movies because there's a lifestyle that comes with that. I'm not talking about money that might not be desirable to people. And so mm-hmm. if that's not how you see yourself being, that is okay too, in my opinion. You know, what would you say like it, it, with, with your hindsight being 2020, all of the years that you've been in this business, do, do you think that this is a business that anybody could break into or are there certain, um, sort of constitutional traits in a person that someone either has to have or needs to be able to develop in order to step into the world of, of media music? Yes and no. And I'll tell you why. I, I have a degree in biochemistry. I do not have outside of USC. I don't have an undergrad degree in music. It's all in science. So I will be the first one to tell you, follow your passion. Like you can do this, right? Hollywood does magically just, crap out movies, right? It's just normal people that decided this is what they wanted to do and they followed and pursued it or weren't afraid to follow and pursue it. So in that sense, yes, anybody could do this. Just decide you want to do it and go. Having said that, um, I do think there's a lot of traits and demeanors of individuals that some people just won't be good at it. And most of those traits have nothing to do with writing music. I think you need to be a really good problem solver. I need to think, I I believe you need to be um, a person that people like to work with or get inspired to work with. They want to sit in a room with you for months on end solving that problem. And some some composers are really good at being, quite frankly, you know, cave people. Um, and we don't have <laughs> the, a social graces to kind of deal with the politics or deal with individuals in our space while we're, we are creating. And I think you have to, you have to, it's a collaborative art and you have to allow that, right? I've done films where I've been here by myself in this room on this computer and it's sending stuff digitally. And for me, that's fun. It's great. I get to experiment and not embarrass myself by going off on a tangent that doesn't work. Having said that, I've also done a film where the director has sat on that couch behind me the entire time. And I'm not even done. (laughs) playing an idea and he's like no note should go down not up like i you know like i can't even get the idea out without someone interjecting and while there are kind of limits and sometimes i would say can you go take a nap outside i'll call you in an hour um you have to be willing to put up with that kind of collaboration because everybody's different so yeah. you know i also think people who aren't good at the business um can really sabotage themselves in having a successful business as an entrepreneurial composer, right? So I do think there are these traits that have nothing to do with music that you kind of have to be good at. But I, I'm not going to say that you're not able to get good at that. But some people may truly have to change their personality or their soul. Um, you know, I'm an introverted person. I am not very good in a crowd. But over the years, I've had to force myself to try to be more personable in a crowd. I have, I have a face that if I'm just calm and relaxed, I probably don't look approachable. And being six foot two <laughs> doesn't help with that, right? Because I'm, I'm a bigger person. And I guess my deadpan face is kind of like I'm angry or something. So I have to work when I'm in a crowd of people to try to have a smile or be approachable um, mm-hmm. more. And I, I have to be socially aware of what my challenges are with that. So again, a lot of people aren't socially aware. And so they just, you know, I do think there are some skill sets that 
people have to have. It, it's and it seems too like there's just an aspect I feel like where it's like you know you have to love it so much to the point where you're willing to develop these skills and willing to learn how to do things that you're probably not very naturally good at. And you also have to be willing to do it, you know, especially for a time in the beginning, whether or not you make money, it has to be something that you enjoy doing so much that you're going to do it, whether you make money or not. This is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but my, my, uh, my view on it is that, you know, the, the vast majority of people who pursue a career in any kind of creative endeavor, their career is probably not going to turn out the way that they imagined that it would when they started. Yeah, And you have to be okay with that, right? And you have to be adaptable. You do. I, but a college advisor once told me when I told him I was changing from biochemistry to music and I was talking with the music person that was helping me do this initially. And uh, they said, they literally said these words. I will remember it like it was yesterday, but you would be giving up a career path of financial prosperity for one of financial destitution. (laughs) And it took about three or four seconds. And I said, do you think I was becoming a doctor for the money? I wasn't. And at the time, and I wasn't, I'm not doing this for the money either. Like there is potential successful film composers to make a lot of money. Yes. There's potential for media composers to make more money than symphony concert composers, perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. But you can't be doing it for that. Absolutely. You have to be willing to do it because this is what you have to do. And whether you are financially successful, you can still be you know, successful for yourself, your soul, that this is, this is what makes you happy. This is what you have to do and put out to the world. And I think you have to be okay with that at a bare minimum. And also back to what you were saying about diversifying, you know, like even to what you're saying about diversifying in mediums, I think it's really important as a creative person to keep your blinders off, like you had mentioned, Mike, and keep your eye out for different opportunities. Because to use myself as an example, I've been playing in bands since I was like 13, 14. I've been touring, writing albums, releasing records. My trajectory that I was on, that I was pursuing was, you know, a musical artist. I never expected to end up in having a career. I don't know why this thumbs up thing keeps happening for me. Are you guys seeing that? The um, AI is watching your thumb. <laughs> I know. It's just keeping an eye on it. Um, I I never uh, I never expected to fall into a career uh, composing for films. That was something that came out of the blue for me. I certainly never expected to fall into a career doing video marketing for, uh, you know, for cine samples or like sample companies or anything like mm-hmm. that. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, you never really know where you're going to end up. And there are so many opportunities that could come up that you may not have seen if you were just solely focused on one thing. And they actually might be opportunities where you might be happier than if you had ended up where you thought you wanted to. Very true. Right. Very true. Well, since you all mentioned AI, shall we switch to that? (laughs) That's our favorite subject. I listened to your last show on that, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I have an idea for you. I I told you I had an idea for you. Ooh, I want to hear it. For Musio. A lot of the AI discussion is kind of about the creation of music. I actually think it'd be really cool to have... um, and I'm not talking about meter, but to have like an AI conductor 
So to have a thing in Musio where you could say, you know, trumpets a little darker sound, you know, trombones shorter on your staccato, and that changes the the settings or the parameters or whatever to change those pitches. So it might change the EQ to make it a darker sound. It might change, you know, the the scripting of the attack to have a little shorter trombone sound, but like a conductor giving feedback to an orchestra, you could give feedback to the playback of your samples. And with Amusio's uh, settings, you could manipulate feasibly all the different settings instead of having to like manually go in, okay, what's the, where's the knob that I turned down to, t to do the EQ, whatever. In one sentence or description, you can kind of manipulate what that is. Well, that's, that's actually super cool because learning to mix or learning to use all of those knobs or things, that's an, that's an entirely different skill set, yeah, right? Yeah. Like if you're just coming to music. So if you could just say, hey, this is a little bright to me, mm -hmm. um, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, that's the thing that slows composers down the most, especially composers that write with virtu virtual instruments is this sort of like painstaking time that's spent editing MIDI data. Right? Yeah. You just go through, you, you, know, you select all the trumpets and you're just like moving the velocity values around or your you know the cc1 curves and it's like oh can we get away from that because at the end of the day i know we all know what we want it to do yeah so you know can i just write a prompt that just says you know make this from bar 32 to 64 make it more expressive go yeah <laughs> and see what it does <laughs> and if it's in the right direction and then you can be more specific well yeah. and you think of it like i've always looked at midi as not the final delivery medium, but a performance medium, which is why I always want to record my MIDI into right. audio before I mix it. I don't like mixing in MIDI. Mm -hmm. And then the mixing to me is like a separate task, whether I'm doing it or someone else is doing right. it. It's yeah. a mixing audio. And if you were to, you know, take a multi-track from a live recording session, you're going to have that session with all the audio, the trumpets and the trombones and close mics and so So in a similar fashion the virtual instrument software is just a playback. That is the musician that is playing mm -hmm. back. So let me right. be the conductor and give feedback to my musicians about how to play those notes and about how I want them to be. Um, and I, and I do think you can kind of transcribe that, what they're saying into what does that mean? Okay. Make these darker. Okay. Maybe the EQ comes down a little bit, make these, you know, trumpets, can you be more distant with that? Maybe that plays with some of the, you know, the, the algorithm on the sound or whatever to make it sound further away. So uh, that might be an interesting way that that's not writing notes for you. That's not coming up with note ideas, but that is certainly um, allowing you to, with words or a prompt, tell your yeah. virtual musician how to play that differently. So it's kind of like, you know, AI itself won't replace composers, but composers using AI will replace composers that aren't, right? If, it, so if they're using like, the tool correctly, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the other aspect, one thing that your, your other AI discussion didn't get much into, which I think is huge, and this is more on the business side of, of AI, is I, I think what's going to kill AI for media composers, and I'm, when I say this, I'm talking about the AI composed score, not the tools mm -hmm. we're talking about using. What will kill that is copyright. Because in copyright law, it's already there's already case precedent that copyright is only for human created content. Mm -hmm. So now we have to get into what is human created content. Is a prompt 
enough to be considered human generated content. And in general, I would argue, and there are some cases that a prompt to say, write dark moody music, and then a dark moody melody comes out, that's not enough of a prompt to have written the melody. You're describing the melody, but you're not musically writing the melody. If you write C to B flat to A, whatever, then you're writing the melody. So AI music that just generates based on a prompt and a mood in a, in a description of something to me is not human created content. And if it's not human created content, it's not protected under copyright. And if it's not protected under copyright, then the industry that needs to own all this stuff to control it and sell it and make money off of it is not going to be able to own it and control it and sell it and make money off of it. Therefore, for media music, I'm not talking about music in general. YouTube's going to have a prompt, create this, and you put free music under your videos. That's different. But for film composers, AI-created scores in general, um, and again, from the composition aspect, um, the copyright is what's going to slow that down or the ability for it to not be copywritten. So I, I think the law needs to catch up and we need to be vocal about to our, you know, to the SEL and Recording Academy and all these people that they need to lobby that um, AI generated music, generated notes really should not be eligible for copyright. That's that will kill the whole copyright composer, you know, threatening the human composer thing in this business, in my opinion. Well, the only thing would be that then companies would start to just use, they don't care about copyright. They just want the content. True. Warner Brothers in their Batman movie is going to care, but yes. YouTube or industrial uh, music or, you know, things that sell product, even commercials that maybe don't care, they won't care. So it's still going to displace composers, but, but the art creating of game scores and movie scores and all this other stuff in general that have copyright protection as a, as a movie, they're not going to put not copyrightable music. Yeah. Um, We've seen this already. I've seen game contracts that say no AI tools allowed. And, you know, yeah. if you're hiring a composer. Well, it's, it sounds like, uh, like you're saying maybe AI generated music might replace like library music. Yeah. Not so much the, uh, the, the film composer, the game composer who's composing something specifically for, a project. Yes. Now, how, how do you feel? I know that there are people around the AI conversation, especially as it pertains to copyright. I know that there are a lot of people out there who think that the world would be better without copyright law when it comes to music, that uh, creativity would flourish uh, without copyright law if people were able to kind of do whatever they wanted in the music world. How do you feel about that? Have you heard that argument at well, all? You might or? as well say you don't have property, you know, yeah. go all the way. I have heard know? the argument and I don't agree with that. So just for the record, I don't, yeah. I don't either. I hit it on the nail. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, at a certain point, what is the point? Um, so, you know, we don't live in a Star Trek world where there's no money and nobody owns anything. And we're, you know, um, so I keep this USA centric, even though the audience of this podcast I know is worldwide, but the United States doesn't make a lot of any more anything. Um, you know, the, we might design the computer by Apple in California, but it's made in China, right? We might mm -hmm. build components or in the computer or in a CAD modeling here and design the intellectual property of something, 
but it gets built somewhere else cheaper and then imported back in. So one of the key things of business in our country is the creation of, of intellectual property. We create it in the entertainment that we make. We create it in the, the products and the computers and cars and designs for things that we do. Um, and then we export that intellectual property around the world. So to have that argument in general, it defeats to me kind of the main economic engine of our country. You know, mm. And I think you can make this argument for any country. I, I mean, I think the, the products of its people are, are something that they should, the country should absolutely protect. If anything, I think there's an argument to have stronger copyright protection laws because by protecting the copyright of the people that what we're creating, our key export to the world is copyright, entertainment, our stuff mm -hmm. we come up with. We are actually supporting business and we're actually supporting small business. You know, every composer and engineer you hire to do that music mix, there's a tree of people under them that typically get hired um, to help support that or do whatever. So lobbying a legislator, you can certainly make the argument, and the SEL should be on this, the RIAA should be on this, um, NARAS should be on this. Lobbying legislators to protect copyright and have stronger copyright protection is really just protecting small business. And I, either side of the political aisle, in my opinion, small business protection and getting behind small business is one thing most people tend to get behind if they can be made to believe that it is impacting small business. You know, um, there are, there's a lot of money and lobby power for big business, of course, but small business is the engine generator of our country. And which is why it gets, you know, puts a fire under my butt when I see things like uh, the California's AB5 law or whatever, because I, which is the thing that makes it harder to be an independent contractor because mm. to me, independent contracting, that is small business, right? And so it, we should be doing everything in our power to empower small business and not the big business owners who are only hiring employees and then, you know, like empower our workers to do their own thing and to have incentive to grow at it and to reinvest in themselves and their business. Most people working yeah. in this thing, you're not Taylor Swift. You know, they're yeah. us um, doing as much as we can to hire as many as we can. You're not Taylor Swift? Absolutely not. I, th I, I thought we were talking to Taylor Swift. <laughs> Mike, what's going on here? Next episode, right? That's right. <laughs> but I think you're right, Chris. Like, you know, it, the path of least resistance is is, you know, people don't want to deal with copyright. I, I think of my kids who are just, they're creating videos all the time for YouTube. And all of their, all of their YouTube videos have this music from Kevin, McLe Kevin McLeod, I think is how you say it. McLeod? It's like, he's McLeod. probably the most performed composer on planet earth right now, because mm. every single, it seems like every single YouTube video has something from him in it because he released thousands of tracks that are completely royalty free, like totally, it's oh, a very wow. controversial thing to do. He did this many years ago, but it's one of the many tunes that you can just choose from within YouTube to have it going behind your, I mean, he had, he made the con conscious choice to do that. Yeah. Like, I, think I think the path of least resistance is that that's where yeah. everything will go if there's no protections in place because people just want to make be creative, but it'll be short term yeah. because then if no one's benefiting financially, then it's just going to, uh, so that's a, that's a tough one. Cause from one angle, you could look at the AI thing and being able to generate music that can be used in other people's creative endeavors on YouTube as a positive thing for the music world, because it, you know, 
instead of people going and ripping off other people's songs or people having to put up royalty free music, uh, people like YouTube creators can just get it from an AI generated algorithm. And then maybe, I don't know what, would you look at that as a positive thing or would you look at that as a negative thing, taking away a revenue stream from library creators? Yeah. I think they make a lot of money off of all of YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. I mean, that's the future in my opinion. You know, that's yeah. where things are going as these platforms. And I think there's money to be made there, but I don't I know how like, much that's all. Yeah. How much? Because, you know, art, like, so I use Artlist.io, right. And I pay a subscription to that. And just like with the streaming services with Netflix, I would imagine that if you have your music up on a big giant uh, sort of repository of licensed music, that you don't make a ton of money off of each time that somebody downloads your your music. I don't know. I'm I'm just speculating here. I had a friend who had a significant chunk of music in a small library for many years. And because of that, his stuff and the relationships of who owned that library, it got out there quite a bit. He made a, a, a nice mid five figure sum every year on that, on that library. That library owner decided they wanted to get out of the business and they sold their library to BMG. So that library of, you know, thousand tracks, whatever it was, um, small, um, got absorbed by in the sea of millions of tracks that BMG library has. And my friend's yearly income went from a five figure sum literally down to three figures. The first quarter that was reporting. And now it's still barely makes four figures because it's diluted in this sea of other stuff. When he was in a smaller library, the relationship of that library owner with the music supervisors and the placers who were, he had relationships, come look at the library, we got this, blah, blah, blah. And they, they, oh, found something they liked. But now it's just in the sea of BMG and BMG's not pushing his stuff. They're just pushing, they got all, you know, this huge BMG library. So, yeah, that's interesting. so that's, people don't that's... find it anymore in a bigger library. Mm -hmm. And his, you know, he had to really change his, his model of kind of what he was doing and it has no fault of his own. And you would think BMG, yeah. oh, this is, this is good. More people going to see it. No, it was so diluted. Hardly anyone saw it. No, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause these smaller companies, um, like I wrote a lot for audio machine, which does a lot of m like movie trailer stuff, but they're boutique yeah. and it's those relationships that Paul Dinlatier, the owner, had with the, all of the trailer houses, and they would they charged a fee. It's like you want one, you want an audio machine track. This is what it cost because they knew they were getting quality. You know, mm -hmm. so I do I do think the music library people in general, you know, it's coming if it's not already. I mean, it's like the assembly line of building cars. You know, it used to be a lot of people, and now it's a lot of robotic arms. It's just, it's a nature of how the technology is changing. But I think if we change and adapt with it, one of which is diversifying, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and you'll, you'll weather it and be fine. For both of you, and especially for you, Brian, like, is there anything that you would want to leave listeners with um, as you know, the piece of advice that you would give to people who were just sort of wanting to get into this business or just dipping their toe in? In general, I, I think a lot of people get really excited about 
the music, the DAW, the tech, the virtual instrument, don't ignore the business. Don't ignore learning mm -hmm. about the business of what you're doing. Um, because I think there are a lot of talented people that create a lot of amazing music that do not have sustainable, successful careers because of all the other non-note stuff that they don't really do very well at. Um, do you mind if I talk about my seminar really quick? Yes, I was going to mention that. So, yeah. yeah. I've been doing this for 23 years, somehow managed to survive. Um, for 13 years, I've been teaching at the uh, UCLA Extension about in their film scoring program. About 10 years ago, nine years ago, um, I developed for them, for their new curriculum, the Business of Film Music class, which is basically everything but writing the notes. It's what I'm talking about. It's an 11-week course. Um, I still teach it to this day. We do it about two quarters a year, so we don't do it all the time. It used to be spring, fall, spring, fall. Now I think it's going to be summer, winter, summer, winter. But And every class I have a guest come in, we talk about contracts, we talk about every, you know, agents come in, publicists come in, all that stuff, lawyers come in. But I still feel like, you know, not a lot of people have access to that. And there's still a a way that we can make, spread the knowledge more with composers about the business side of this. So I've decided to embrace the technology we have today. Thank you, pandemic, and um, offer some, you know, some individual seminar uh, workshops or courses, whatever you want to call them for composers about the business side of it. So um, if you go to filmmusic.business, that is the website in its entirety, filmmusic.business, starting in February, I'm offering two courses I've, I've, this is a little bit of an experiment for me. So if I change my, my model in the future, you know, forgive me, but I, I feel like I'm going to do 12 hours. I'm going to do two days, six hours a day, basically a three hour, one hour break and a three hour. I'm not pre-recording these. I'm doing them live. Like I would do any class. So you have interaction with me to ask questions and everything. I'm going to do them a week apart. So if you're signing up for a group one or group two, you'd, you would be, like a Sunday, uh, nine to noon, take an hour off for lunch, come back, you know, two to, uh, was it two to five, two to one to four, one to four. Um, and that's day one. And then I let you sit with the material for a week. And then the following Sunday, we come back and do day two. So you can sit with it. You can rewatch stuff. Everybody that takes this course, which I'm, which I'm doing kind of for three ninety five, which to me is a steal what you're going to get. You're going to get, a work for hire contract, you're going to get a license agreement contract that are real world usable, created by lawyers. Um, you're going to, and you could take that with you. Um, we're going to go through the language. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about spotting, cue sheets, spotting notes. You're going to get templates for those things to use. Um, you're going to talk about communicating with a, comp with a director and how to like talk with them. We're going to talk about budgeting and orchestras, union versus non-union what those numbers typically look like. I have a contractor that's going to speak with the group for a little bit of time. Um, so you'll get that introduction to a contractor as well. Um, and then my attorney is actually going to come in and speak with everybody for a half hour. And she has offered anyone that takes my course will get a free 30 minute uh, consult with her. Um, well, she will not charge you and you can save that. You don't have to use it in a month or anything. You can save that and use it for anything. You just remind her that you're in my course and you're getting two contracts and a lawyer's 30 minutes of a lawyer's time just for taking this course. Um, awesome. you'll get all the keynotes that I put up. You will get, um, recordings. We're going to zoom record whatever the seminar is. 
and I'm going to learn as much from everybody as, you know, from them as they hopefully do for me, um, because this is the first time I've done it. So for people that listen to your podcasts, um, I'm going to get $50 off. Oh, so if they type in the coupon code, when they do it orchestrated, um, it will give them $50 off. Well, that's a very, very nice gift. You guys, I mean, I, I just wish that I had something that I could sign up for like that when I was starting out. Cause so much of this is unclear, especially the business aspects of it. All of, all of the things that we've talked about, like I had to figure those things out on the fly and be, to, to be able to have a course to sign up for like, for like this would have been absolutely amazing. We're going to do a weekday and a weekend version of the course. So people that were, I picked Tuesdays this time and Sundays for the weekend version. So if weekends are better for you or weekdays are better for you, there's two options in February. One starts February 4th. One starts the weekend version starts February 4th. So it'd be 4th and 11th. The weekday version starts on the 20th. So it'd be the 20th and 27th. Um, and then I'm going to evaluate how well that went. And uh, my intent is to offer it again. And basically the quarters that I'm not teaching at UCLA, I will probably be doing this separately for myself. It is a much more condensed thing, of course. Um, so we, we don't have time to get into every single topic that I would like to get in, but I'm going to really try to make it beneficial that people come away with um, some good stuff. It's amazing, man. Yeah. Really, really cool. Everyone needs to sign up. Yep. You'll find the link in the show notes. Um, and the code was orchestrated, right? Orchestrated. Enter the code orchestrated. Yep. I mean, I might sign up. Hell, that'd be, that sounds amazing. Brian, thank you so much for being here with us, man. Like this is Thanks for having really, me. really, really great conversation. It's, it's good to yeah. be back in podcast chair again. I don't know. I feel left out though. I didn't have my SM57 on the, I sh- it's in my, <laughs> it's in my vocal booth. And I, oh, that's I all right. Your mic one. actually sounds fantastic. <laughs> it sounds really, really, really it's nice. And it, and it looks super professional. That's yeah. Good. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Orchestrated. We, uh, we hope you found that conversation helpful. To check out Demystifying the Composer Business, visit filmmusic.business or just, you know, follow the link in the show notes. And don't forget to enter the code ORCHESTRATED to get $50 off the two-day seminar. And seriously, don't sleep on this seminar. The film music business can be pretty murky and difficult to navigate on your own. So, you know, resources like this can definitely help you make sense of it all. Follow us on Instagram at Musio. Check out our YouTube channel at Musio.official. And really, I invite you to go to Musio.com, sign up for a 30-day free trial, get a whole boatload of virtual instruments, and just get creative. You don't need a credit card. You don't need to pay for anything. Just go sign up and have a blast. I promise you won't be disappointed. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Chris Hazel, and this is Orchestrated. (laughs) 